morning. My name is uh, Bill Drips. I'm one of the elders here at Grace Fellowship Church. In 1910, a man named Ed Pulaski led a bunch of men down a mountainside in um, Montana. And he got down in this little valley where there was an abandoned mine tunnel leading back into the hill, and he forced all these men into that tunnel. It was a pretty scary scene. Some of the men tried to get out. He pulled his pistol, stood at the entrance to that tunnel, and didn't let anybody out. He held them there most of the night. Was that Pulaski a hero or a heel? What do you think? What you don't know, what you don't know, is that there was a huge forest fire, the biggest forest fire this country has ever seen. It's called the Big Burn. Just a few miles away, an entire Forest Service crew of over 40 men, it was like 48 men, were wiped out to the last men by this fire. There were towns that were abandoned because of this fire. Ed Pulaski got him in the tunnel. There was a little water in the tunnel. They found an old blanket. They nailed it up over the entrance to the tunnel. And he stood there while that fire raised outside the tunnel with his pistol in his hand, keeping those panicked forest servers, service rangers from leaving that tunnel. When it was all over, they found him laying there on his face. It's for that tunnel with his gun in his hand. Most of the men in that tunnel survived. Ed Pulaski, fortunately, was one of them. His lungs were seared, terrible damage to a lot of his body. He was never really a well man after that. But they celebrated Ed Pulaski. Ed Pulaski was a hero. Doing things that in ordinary life, if he did to ordinary people, he'd have gotten thrown in jail for. Context makes all the difference, doesn't it? In fact, the Forest Service now has a tool that they use for uh, putting out forest fires. It's the main tool that every ranger is, list, is issued, and it's known as a Pulaski. Was named after, named after him. Today we conclude our series in the book of Job. <clears throat> we have already covered all but the last 11 verses of Job, so first we will review most of 42 chapters. Needless to say, this review will be a blitz. Most of Job has been poetry, which is well-suited to conveying the depth of Job's feelings through his sufferings. Now we conclude with a prose narrative. This short, short section will tell us much about the conclusion of the whole book. Then finally, we will talk about what difference Job should make for us. So we have a review, we have the conclusion, and then we have an application. The question is, how to endure intolerable suffering? The men in that tunnel endured intolerable suffering. Actually, the, the fire was so bad that everybody in the tunnel passed out. 
that's a lot of suffering. <laughs> I didn't, I've never had that experience of being in a fire so bad that I passed out. But almost all those men survived. So what do we do in the face of intolerable suffering? Thankfully, in Job, the author gets that done pretty quickly. It all happens in the, in the first two chapters. First, Job loses all that he has, including his children. Second, Job is personally afflicted with loathsome sores over his whole body. To make all this even more intolerable, God says in Job chapter 2, verse 3, that Job was afflicted without reason. And everybody wants to find a reason. Well, why did this happen? Maybe God was having a wager with Satan. Job said, actually, or God says, actually, it happened without reason. How does Job react? Now, I, you know, I think God probably had a reason. I just think that we wouldn't understand it. So, and that's what God said. So how did Job react? Well, Job's first answer, Job chapter 1, uh, 20 through 22, then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. The author of the book of Job seems to think that Job is doing well here. Now, Job's wife's solution, you remember that in Job chapter 2, verse 9? Then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Um, yeah, it gives you kind of a warm, fuzzy feeling, right? Job re- rejects this. In the next verse, it says, But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, as a parenthetical comment, Sometimes when you read the book of Job, you notice that Job refuses to his integrity fairly often, and you wonder what he means by that. Well, actually, in this verse, that is his integrity. What would he be giving up? Why, his wife says, why do you hold fast to your integrity? And his integrity are these famous quotes. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord, and shall we receive good from God and not receive evil? So it helps us to understand what Job means by this phrase throughout the book. Okay, now one thing we should understand at this point is that by the end of chapter 2, Job has proven God correct. Job has proven God right. God has said that Job would stand fast. He has let Satan do his worst. In fact, I have no doubt that Job would have preferred if Satan had gone ahead and killed him. So why does the book of Job continue after this point? Why in the world? Job has made a wonderful response to suffering. It's probably better than any of us would have done. Yet, in the face of such intolerable suffering, yet God wants more. God wants a breakthrough heart change in Job that is simply breathtaking. Job's wonderful confession is actually not enough for God. 
So then we move on to the friend's lie. The friend's lie is basically be good, be blessed, be bad, do bad, be cursed. Now, Job is really, really hurting at this point. This is intolerable suffering. Job wants to know why this is happening and what he needs to do to stop the pounding. This guy really wants some advice. He has three friends, friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. (laughs) They do a lot that's good and right. Their answers are actually not simplistic. They get a lot right. But when you boil down what they say, you end up with, do good, be blessed, do bad, be cursed. And you need to understand that this is at least partly right. Sadly, it's also partly wrong. And what it's wrong about is the most important part. First, what's right? In most situations, if you do what you should do, things will go better for you, right? Drive on the right side of the road rather than in the wrong lane. You know, things go better if you do the right. You know, it's back to life. The converse is true as well. In most situations, if you do what you should not do, things will not go well. So this is the part that is true and right. But second, what is the part that's wrong? The part that's wrong is that we cannot meet God's standard of what's right. Jesus says in Matthew 5:48, "You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." How many of you here today are perfect? Uh I don't see any hands. Anybody <laughs> Yeah, me neither. The hope of being good enough is a terrible lie. It assumes that God is not as good as he really is. See, when we're saying, well, I'm pretty, well, I'm a good person and that sort of thing, what we mean is compared to the average guy, I'm not too bad. What we don't mean is compared to God, I look like a shining star. God is so good and right that he can tolerate no spot or blemish. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when the serpent promised Eve that she would be like God. We may want to believe we are like God, but we are not God. While among we may be the good guys, but before God we certainly do not measure up. This is why God later says that the three friends are wrong. They were wrong. They were not wrong about everything, everywhere. But what they were particularly wrong about is who God is. He is so uh, amazingly good. He is actually perfect. So, so far we have Job's initial response uh, to this question, what do you do in the face of intolerable suffering, and it's an excellent response. We have the friend's nice-sounding lies. And uh, and this has uh, taken us up to chapter 31. So we've actually covered most of the book at this point. But this is not enough for God. The book goes on. So now we get to Elihu. 
And uh, God's purpose is far deeper. And this is Job 32 uh, through 37. Elihu's the new guy. He has listened patiently to the three older friends. But in chapter 32, he's quite frustrated. Job is justifying himself, and the friends said Job was wrong. First, Elihu takes the three friends to task for failing to answer Job adequately. Everything they say, Job just heads them off and cuts them off at the knees. He is really good. I would hate to be in a debate against Job. This guy is at the limit of his endurance. He is hurting as bad as... I hope I never hurt that bad. And he is still on top of it in terms of the argument. Maybe that maybe that pain sharpens his argument a little. I don't know. So first... Elihu takes the three friends to task for failing to answer Job. In uh, chapter 32:15, he says, they, uh, speaking of these friends, they are dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And then in chapter 33, Elihu focuses not on what the friends have said, but on what Job has said in this book. In uh, 33, 8 through 12, Elihu speaks directly to Job. Surely you have spoken in my ears, and I have heard the sound of your words. You say, I am pure without transgression. I am clean, and there is no iniquity in me. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and watches all my paths. Behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. You know, I don't think I've suffered like Job suffered, but I've certainly been in God's, in Job's shoes when God has afflicted me and others have asked me what I did wrong. It's really hard not to respond in kind to that kind of question. And I really have to respect Job's response here to Elihu. He says nothing. And I think that that's probably a pretty good response at this point. When you are really hurting, that may well be the best response. Elihu, at the end of his speech, calls on Job not to trust in his own wisdom. In uh, chapter 37, 33, and 34, Elihu says, The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. He will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. And he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. And I think in Job's lack of an answer at that point, in contrast to his verbose answers to the first three friends, I think he's seeing the truth in what Elihu has to say. So again, we have Job's excellent response in chapters 1 and 2. We have 29 chapters of just be good. Now we have six chapters of give up your conceit. The only trouble is this is still not good enough for God. He wants more. So then we have some answers. God is both greater and better. And this is chapters 38 through 41. Job has been complaining that he cannot speak with God. For example, in 19.7, he says, 
behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Of course, all along, God has been speaking to Job through his suffering, through creation. But that has not been enough for Job. Now God speaks loudly. How often we pray and ask God to speak to us. Have you ever prayed and said, God, if you would just speak to me? If I could just hear a voice, have you ever prayed that? You should go read Job. He actually got what he wanted here. Perhaps we should be more careful what we ask for. God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind. Now, I've seen movies of tornadoes. Have you ever watched the movies? they got them all over YouTube. And uh, people are out there with their iPhones now, standing in the road taking movies of tornadoes. It goes to show that there is no intelligent life on planet Earth, right? And, I, I mean, I, I have seen people taking these movies and watched, watched uh, tires fly by. Have you ever seen a, a whole tire just fly by? <laughs> I don't want to be anywhere close where that's happening. I really don't want to be up personal or up close and personal with a tornado. But Job wanted to hear God loudly, and I think he did. So God describes the wonders of creation and then asks Job if he wants to argue with him. Wisely, Job declines to answer. Clearly, Job knows that God's wisdom is far beyond his own. And he says, I put my hand over my mouth and I'm not saying nothing. He can be taught. But this is not enough for God. So God goes on. He then goes into the question of right and wrong in Job chapter 40, verses 6 and 8, 6 through 8. God says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Rest for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Many choose to reject what God says about right and wrong, truth and falsehood. There lies the way of folly. And God is pointing out to Job what he has been doing in his heart. And these questions that he's raised, if you take them to their logical conclusion, Job is saying God is not good. Or if he is good, he's not strong enough. Or maybe he's lost in the woods somewhere. I don't know. It's the way of folly. Now, in these last uh, couple chapters here, it's not exactly clear what behemoth and leviathan are. But it is clear that they are well beyond man's control. They are mentioned here in this context of good and evil. So it seems to me that what they are representing, they are like the knowledge of good and evil. We want that knowledge, but we can't control it. To get it, we must accept God's revelation. We have no other basis for that determination. And when we try to say, we will determine what is good and evil, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. You remember that poem? We say those kind of things, and what we're basically saying is that God is not good. And we think that we are the master, we are the captain, but really... We are being ruled by behemoth and leviathan. 
So finally, we get to our chapter of today that was talked about last week in verses 1 through 7. Chapter 42, verses 1 through 7, Job finally admits that he doesn't and cannot understand. He now knows God at a whole new level. He's not just silent. Instead, he repents of his trust in his own understanding. And that's really a key lesson. When you, when you look out at the stars at night, and do you say to yourself, boy, I understand all of that up there. Isn't that so great? I'm so smart. The reality is, is that there is very little that we really understand. And we really don't understand God. We can know God truly in terms of his revelation to him, to us of himself, but we cannot know him fully. So we started with Job's excellent response to intolerable suffering. We moved to the friends with the seductive lies. Then the Lehu talked about God's deeper purpose. Now Job repents, stops trusting in his understanding, and trusts God. Finally, 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 this is enough for God. At this point, the pounding stops. Oh, and is it not a relief? It is so wonderful to get to Job 42. And I think that that's actually on purpose. I think that the author did that on purpose. So the question, how do we endure intolerable sovereign? Now we move on to the conclusion. Now we switch from poetry to prose narrative. We get some conclusions. It's important to notice that in this section, God is the initiator, the main actor. Everyone else is responding to God's initiative. God is our defender, verse 7 through 9 in 42. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the the Temanite, My anger burdens against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, and I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. It's really key to read what these guys said in light of God's response to it. He did not think a lot of them. Then he goes on to say, For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. All through this book, Job has longed for a defender, a redeemer, an advocate. Job says in 629, Please turn. Let no injustice be done. Turn now. My vindication is at stake. He's calling on God to turn and defend him. Now we see that all this time, Job had a defender all along. God himself is Job's defender. Do you remember what God said to Satan back in the first couple of chapters? Have you seen anyone like my servant Job? 
God was Job's defender all along. And we get in the midst of suffering, and it's really hard for us to see that. But it's been true. The same is true in the New Testament. Jesus is our defender, certainly in paying the penalty for our sin. But he's also our defender on the smaller issues. Consider John 12, 1 through 7. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, parentheses, he was about to betray him, in parentheses, said, Why was this anointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you have all, you, you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And what a beautiful picture of how the Lord defends us. Um, and, uh, and that is the way the Lord defends us. As God defended Job to his friends, so Jesus is our defender. So the first conclusion in the book of Job that we need to bear very clearly in mind is that God is our defender. It might not feel like that. We may not see it. We may not understand it. But the fact is, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have a defender, and he will protect you. The second, the second conclusion is that God is our restorer. In verse, in chapter 42, verses 10 and 11, it says, And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. So did you ever notice here that the Lord gives Job back twice what he had before? Why is that? Why would he pick twice? Well, maybe Exodus 22 verse 4 will help. And it's... um, talking about a thief, and it says if the stolen beast is found alive in his possession, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall pay double. And by paying Job back twice, God is taking the position of a thief. God is taking responsibility for Job's suffering. It's not that God has done evil. No, he certainly hasn't. God has done good to Job by freeing Job of his trust in his own understanding. 
But it seems to me that God is here reassuring us that he really will make all things work together for good for those who love him. We also see this in the New Testament. In Romans 11.32, For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. Have you ever wondered? You've done something wrong, right? Have you ever done something wrong? And have you ever thought to yourself, Oh man, how am I going to make up for that? What's amazing, what is absolutely amazing is that God knew you were going to sin, you were going to do that wrong thing before you ever did it. And before you were even born, He sent Jesus to pay the penalty for that. God takes responsibility for our disobedience. God is so incredibly good, He is not willing to see you perish forever. So He takes responsibility for it. Again, we read in Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 28 through 31, Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or, or mother or father or children or lands for not my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. And this next phrase is just crazy. Do you know what the next phrase is? Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. God puts himself on the hook from making it all up to us. Basically what he's saying is, you can't give me anything that I'm not going to repay you a hundred times for. Take everything that has ever cost you to walk with God, to be his witness, to serve him, multiply by a hundred, And how would you feel to be getting that back? That's like you invest $100, you get back what? $100,000, right? $10,000? Is that what it is? Yeah, $10,000. That's a lot of money. Where can you get that kind of return on investment? So God is our restorer. It takes suffering to deliver us from the sin in our hearts. And you know what? The fact that it does take suffering just shows what a difficult problem it is. And if God has to take us through suffering to deliver us from the sin in our hearts, basically we ought to be grateful at that point. But God will restore all that we have given up to follow him. So we have concluded that God is our defender, that He is our restorer, and now that we see, now we see God is our happiness. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than His beginning. And He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 
and a hundred female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Happutch. And all in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his son's sons, four generations, and Job died an old man and full of days. Well, you know, God doubled everything he had. He even doubled the length of Job's life. His average lifespan was, what is it, three score and ten? And uh, gave him double that. I'm sh- I'm sure that uh, not, that most of you know that the word blessed basically means made happy. God gave Job a long life surrounded by beauty. That is amazing. But God did whatever it was going to take to bless Job. God is our happiness. In Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, he starts out by telling us how he intends to to bless us. Read Matthew uh, chapter 5, the beginning there. Blessed are the, are the uh, poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. He goes on and on and again, tells us how he's going to make us happy. You will see no matter how much God blessed Job, Jesus intends to bless us more. Is that even possible? We have, three conclu- we have three conclusions. God is our defender, our restorer, and our happiness. And how do we apply this? Why does the pounding go on so long? The big reason is that we are slow to learn. You know, just knowing intellectually is not enough. God wants a fundamental change from the bottom of our hearts. Thank God that he does does not plan to leave us with a heart of rebellion. What he is actually doing in allowing us to suffer is putting us through a good form of PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, and how like someone has maybe been off in the war, maybe been a police officer, and they hear a loud bang, and all of a sudden they're right back where they were. Anxiety just sweeps over them. That's a, it's a very common thing. Suffering will do the same thing to you. You remember suffering. How many women here that have had a baby remember labor? Anybody remember that? Anybody have forgotten labor? You can't remember that anymore? It does it to you. It creates a real impression. It changes you at a fundamental level. For example, there's the warm feeling we get when we go back to where something really good happened to you. Has that ever happened to you? You went back somewhere where something really good happened. Maybe on your anniversary, you went back to where you got engaged. Maybe you even made a book so you can kind of look through it and relive it. You know, and those things become memories. (laughs) I can't watch back here. There's uh, What is it? PDA is going on. It's, it's, it's amazing how when we go back to where something really good happened, we get that warm feeling. 
This has huge implications for discipleship. We can teach other people the truth, but we are wholly dependent on God to teach these deeper lessons. It's the work of the Spirit inside of us. Another reason why the pounding went on so long is so that we can better understand what Jesus went through. You know, any suffering that we endure, it it may not be a one-to-one correspondence between what we've done wrong and the suffering that we've had, but the fact is we all endure to go to hell. I mean, we all deserve to endure hell forever, right? So any suffering we get in this life, we deserve Now, that probably is not what we want to hear when we are in the midst of suffering. But it's still true. Jesus not only went through all that we deserve, he was sinless and actually didn't deserve it. Ever been punished for something that you didn't do? (laughs) Was that worse than being punished for something you did do? Oh, yeah, that's a lot worse. It helps us to understand what Jesus went through. So what do we do in the face of intolerable suffering? We remember that God is our defender. Remember that God is your restorer. And remember that God is your happiness. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. You have uh, sent your only Son to deliver us from our sin. And Father, we are so grateful. We also know that your desire is to truly transform us from the inside out, to make us over into your image. And we know, Father, that that's a tough job and that uh, there's going to be suffering involved. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember who you really are, that you are truly good and that you are truly great and that you can bring us through. And we look to you in your son's name. Amen.